Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we think about the future. Now, we planned this episode months ago, before the killings of Dante Wright and Adam Toledo. We wanted to look at police violence as symptomatic of broader social and cultural injustice, racism, and anti-blackness, including in one of America's most liberal communities. What can we learn from officer-involved killings, which on their own can appear isolated and disconnected from larger social conditions and cultural dynamics? Historically, American racism is depicted by the images of the American South. The pastoral South's open secret, a racial hierarchy, transformed time and again, over and over again, from slavery through Jim Crow. Law enforcement wielding heavy batons, unleashing snarling dogs and blasting powerful water hoses, attacking peaceful protesters, mark our American past. Unchecked brutal power and violence indiscriminately landed on the unprotected bodies of black children, women, and men. I can't shake those images. How about you? They leave an indelible mark, hard to ever unsee or forget. The image of Emmett Till comes to mind, lynched shortly after his 14th birthday in Money, Mississippi. His mother, Mamie Till Mobley, insisted on an open casket at his funeral so that people in the United States, as well as around the world, might learn what could happen to a black child in America. Emmett's battered face and skull caved inward under the weight of continuous torture before his body was tossed in the Tallahatchie River with a cotton gin roped around his neck. But follow the Mississippi River northward, and one will arrive in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, or what some Black residents call Northern Mississippi. In Northern Mississippi, racism in policing, housing, employment, and resistance to integration is a problem that extends up the liberal socioeconomic ladder. In this episode, I'm speaking with Black Minnesotans as well as mental health experts who can help us understand trauma and race in America. I start with the breaking story about Adam Toledo's killing, unarmed, hands up. I asked Dr. Patricia Jones Blessman, a nationally noted psychologist who's been on our show before, what's happening in the United States? Well, first of all, Michelle, I think that uh, people are just um, re-triggered, traumatized. You know, we have uh, the, the the trial of for George Floyd going on right now, and then in the midst of that, the murder of Dante Wright, and then to top it all off, the murder of Adam Toledo. I think that you know we are in the midst of some excruciating pain and grief and trauma uh, right now. Um, it's a reminder for, particularly for people of color, that we live in an America that cannot treat all of its citizens equitably. And that has got to be incredibly painful at this moment, especially when we, there's been so much hope for a much different future. Um, so that's what's going on right now. You know, I mean, yeah, we can get into the statistics right. and right. we will do that. Sure. But there's an, just this moment of grief. So I'm also joined by Tasha Green Cruzat. She's the executive director of Voices for Illinois Children. So even before the death of Adam Toledo, black and brown parents have been saying, are saying they fear for their children to even go outside. Why? You know, let's, uh, I think what would be a, a great place to, to start with that is to really talk about the community in which Adam came from, right? And so Adam was from Little Village, which is a larger community of South Lawndale. 
It's 82% Hispanic, 70% speak Spanish, 48% um, have less than a high school degree, 35% of the Londo community earns um, less than $25,000, and a third are below um, the uh, federal poverty level, about 200%. Um, and so these are the circumstances in his neighborhood. Uh, if you also think about the school where um, Adam is, is from, um, it's under-resourced, right? So we, we've got under-resourced under schools where in the time of COVID, um, children are at home. And when we think about these underserved communities, it's, it's, we, we're always referenced in, in terms of black and brown communities, right? And we know that that's been um, a, a problem for many, many, many years. So when you think about all of these things and all of the, the environment in which Adam lived, um, this is also a bigger conversation about not just Adam, but about other children that live in that community and other surrounding Chicago neighborhoods. Just the other day, um, a 17 year old girl was shot and killed in Adams neighborhood in the little village 17 she was shot in the head. So, so we're so so just to turn to the, the, just the circumstances in which Adam lived, and all the other students that 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 lived in that that community is just devastating. The video of Adam Toledo's killing adds further grief to communities already suffering. We return in a later episode to Dr. Blessman and Tasha Cruzat as we probe children in officer-involved shootings. Now, last summer, the killings of Breonna Taylor and Ahmad Aubrey were followed by the 911 weaponized threats against the birder Christian Cooper by a white woman, Amy Cooper, of no relationship, and then the horrific murder of George Floyd, followed by the shooting of Jacob Blake. It was enough. Last year, I wanted to know how we make sense of this. And so we talked about policing in America, policing reform, policing abolition, women and policing. But here we are. Now, my questions are different. Critiquing and reforming policing is important, but what about the rest of us? To get to the bottom of this, I asked T. Michael Rambo, a University of Minnesota professor, award-winning actor, and community leader, who killed George Floyd? Well, my initial response, uh, first and foremost, is that George Floyd was not killed, he wasn't murdered, it was a public lynching. And, and the reality of what transpired was that this man was placed amongst white folk and black folk alike, but laid on the ground, screaming, crying for his mother and the opportunity to breathe with countless cries and wails for over eight minutes and 46 seconds, um, only to be uh, left laying on the ground until EMS um, workers came to respond to an already lifeless body. The, the truth of the matter is that it was really um, more than just um, Derek Chauvin that was the issue here. Dr. George Woods, former head of the International Academy of Law and Mental Health and noted neuropsychiatrist who has served as an expert witness in some of the most high profile cases involving policing, agreed and had more to add. So did Professor Roderick Ferguson, who is a professor of American studies at Yale University, and he previously taught at the University of Minnesota. And we, we know where policing came from. It came from running down slaves and making sure that that valuable property, just, as, just like you would go after your prize Angus that broke through the fence, uh, and you would bring it back to the pasture. 
um, you would go and get that slave and bring it back. And we know that that's where policing came from. But, you know, it's also important there to remember that, you know, he was surrounded by other officers, you know, so already, you know, there's a kind of uh, police culture that we can say, you know, help to kill George Floyd, right? a larger story that all of the Black people interviewed for this podcast wanted to tell, one that acknowledged the horrors and brutality of racial profiling, surveillance, police violence, and lack of accountability. In Minneapolis, Black people are nearly nine times more likely than their white counterparts to be arrested for low-level offenses. For Indigenous populations in the Twin Cities, the data is similarly skewed. In what some have called Minneapolis Black Codes, various misdemeanor offenses are disparately enforced against Black people in Minneapolis. Here's what T. Michael Rambo confided about police stops. So I've had to worry about it because ever since I moved into this neighborhood, uh, I've had police encounters from them throwing me face down in the street right behind my own home to having them pull me over, uh, presuming that I'm a drug de drug purchaser uh, when I make the block of my own home, uh, seeing that my address and my license says that I, you know, um, I was arrested at the Mall of America uh, for telling for um, refusing to move my car from behind a white woman who took my parking space. Then there was T. Michael Rambo's experience at Mall of America, where police pulled him out of his car dragging him across the parking garage all over a parking spot. The police showed up and they pulled me out and they tried to arrest me. They said that she all of a sudden claimed that she was being violated and that she thought she was going to be raped. And she and she did a Karen and fell out into the arms of the police officers and started crying and the whole thing. So they bloodied my lip and drug me across the concrete and handcuffed me and just craziness. So, I mean, and, and, and I'm a degreed professor and everything else. and and well-known person, but that doesn't stop me from being a Black man in America. Hearing their stories hit close to home, reminding me of my own stops in Minneapolis after leaving yoga, driving down the street to my home. And there's the harassment of the wait. You've not done anything wrong, but you must wait 30 or 40 minutes while the officer does whatever he or she does back in the squad car until he or she is satisfied that you can leave. But the trauma of those police stops, they don't fade. And it's something that, according to my guests, white Minnesotans just can't compute because it doesn't happen to them in the bucolic setting that they love. Sometimes neighbors do the policing for police. Once while pulling into my driveway, a neighbor demanded that I stop because I was not allowed down the street, according to him. And when I told him I lived there, he profusely apologized and then invited me to come for drinks at his house. The thing about the Twin Cities police stops and harassment is that they're equal opportunity stops if you're black. No one should be executed over a $20 bill, real or fake. But the truth is, traumatizing police stops in the Twin Cities happen no matter your socioeconomic status, if you're Black. Judge Pamela Alexander shared that she would warn police at her local precinct when she bought a new car so that they could avoid harassing her in her neighborhood. At this point in my interviews with Rodney Ferguson, he was sharing another encounter. And then another time was when I was dropping my friend Richard off at his apartment in Loring Park. And I was literally just dropping him off. Dropping, he's white, dropping him off. And all of a sudden I'm surrounded by these police cars. And Richard remembers it to this day. So when the George Floyd murder happened, that's what he recalled. It's like, I'll never forget that time you dropped me off and all of a sudden you were surrounded 
buying police cars, right? So, um, you know, again, there's a culture of um, not only racial profiling, but also of racism. You know, it's also important to remember the Duluth lynching, you know, um, that happened in the 1920s, I'm forgetting the date, but, you know, as a way of saying that uh, Minnesota itself is not a state that's free of racist violence. It has its own history. that it's not just police stops that create the culture that allowed for the horrible image that we can never unsee of Derek Chauvin looking into a camera while he placed the weight of his body and knee onto George Floyd's neck. There is the weight of history, Minnesota niceness, and racism in this liberal community that hides underneath the veneer of the Twin Cities community being perceived as one of the best places in America to live. However, none of this is a surprise to Black community leaders interviewed for this series. For example, retired Hennepin County Judge Pamela Alexander explained to me, you're actually talking about middle class, upper income, white Twin Cities folks who are resistant to racial integration. The educated people of Minnesota were the people who were resistant, she told me. Judge Alexander, a fourth generation Minnesotan, was the first black woman to become a judge in Minnesota. It's something that she's proud of, but makes clear that being a lawyer and a judge in Minneapolis has not spared her or her family from racial aggressions and hostilities in the Twin Cities, including profiling, police stops, being followed in department stores, or having to address racism among her colleagues. Growing up in South Minneapolis, Judge Alexander and her family had to move several times as the city navigated its highway system through black neighborhoods, destroying the fabric of their community. It is a concern. And, and right after Philando Castillo was killed here, um, I, I remember listening to a, a group of friends and you know my husband's friends you know, all African-American males who said, look, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna drive and have my license on the dashboard because you never know what's gonna happen. You don't wanna reach for anything. You don't want to tick off somebody because you never know what's gonna happen or how they're gonna react to you. And so, and everybody was very, very, very on edge after um, Mr. Castillo was killed. Uh, and, you know, people were like outraged by the fact that he, you know, he stopped, he did everything like they asked him to, you know, and, and he volunteered, well, I, I have a gun here, I just wanted to let you know, and then immediately he was shot and killed, and he had a permit, so mm -hmm. it's just, it's not something, I mean, this can happen at any time to anybody, mm -hmm. and, and we all know it. The narrative told about racism in the US is that liberal communities in the United States are the safest, most welcoming places for black Americans. Judge Alexander wanted to disabuse that notion. I mean, no, not at all. I, I'm where, um, where I grew up in South Minneapolis, we had very, uh, it was very distinct redlining there. Um, we had, but we formed a very vibrant black community. And, you know, a lot of great folks came out of our community. And I think that, um, and it was because, yeah, we were pushed into one place, but we made the most of that. Um, but you better not try to venture out of that. Um, and I, I distinctly remember when Richard Green became the superintendent of schools and he closed the two, almost predominantly white schools here where most of the upper middle class kids went, which was West High School and, and University High School. 
And he said, oh, well, I'm just going to close that to force segregation. I mean, force integration, excuse me. And so he, he shut those two schools down. These folks went insane. And these were all of these supposedly very liberal individuals who said, oh, you know, we're going to help and we, we understand all this. But as soon as you said that they had to go to school with, with kids of color, they went insane. Mm-hmm. And then the whole charter school movement kind of jumped up. The whole, um, you know, people started moving to private schools very quickly. Um, and, you know, because after the, the 60s riots, you know, tons and tons of white flight out of here. What Judge Alexander was emphasizing were the structural inequalities that have long lingered in the Twin Cities. Here she's talking about redlining. Other than the educational system, the other part that was very interesting is I'm sure you've heard about Rondo. I'm sure you've heard about, you know, the freeway going through the Rondo community. Well, they did that in South Minneapolis too. And 35W went through the black community here. Uh, as a matter of fact, my family had to move three times because of the, of the, of the uh, construction of that freeway. And it pretty much decimated our community. And people don't talk about that as much, but originally 35W was supposed to go down Lindale Avenue. And of course they had a whole bunch of very large homes over there. There was, there was a huge tax base out of there. It's closer to the lakes. People were like, no, you're not, you're not running that through here. And they didn't. Mm-hmm. And they ran it right through the, the black community. Uh, and the Native American community, because they're right then, you know, they'd redlined us all. So, you know, the Black community was here, Native American was right next to it. <laughs> and that's where they ran uh, these freeways. And it really messed up the cohesiveness of the community at that time. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't hear as much about it as you do, Rondo, but it, it was the exact same effect. Judge Alexander told me that the Black and Native American communities in the Twin Cities were devastated by the local government moves, equally jarring the petty misdemeanor laws like spitting on the street that desperately enforced against Black people created a pipeline into incarceration. The Twin Cities, known for being high on an index of livability, can be a liability if you are Black. According to Dr. Samuel Myers, a distinguished professor at the University of Minnesota's Public Policy School, while Minnesota is a great place to live for white people, for Black people, it's just like everywhere else and sometimes worse. This is what he's termed the Minnesota paradox, huge racial disparities masked by aggregate outcomes. And it's an issue that he's been studying since moving to Minnesota in the 1990s. He's written, the continued existence of this paradox is driven by buried racism. Unlike places where racism was and is open and transparent, racism in Minnesota is obscured by progressive policy, he writes. He says that Minnesota's legacy of egalitarianism makes it harder for Minnesotans to see racial disparities as manifestations of racism. What Dr. Myers is referencing are policies that institutionalize racism. He recently wrote in the New York Times that structurally racist rules have created a two-tiered society in the Twin Cities from what he calls brutal redlining practices from real estate brokers and lenders and racial covenants limiting where black people could purchase homes to what Dr. Myers calls this redlining as having a lasting impact of racial disparities and wealth. But that's not all. He also talks about policing policies like the code Four policy in Minneapolis substituted overt explicit racial profiling found in other cities with scientifically managed administration of racially disparate arrests. Additionally, as Minnesota doled out programs in public housing and child welfare, they also policed black families, creating rules that reduced benefits. Again, Dr. Myers explains that when out of compliance with work rules, child support rules, even when fathers were incarcerated and thus unable to pay child support, these rules disproportionately affected black people. 
The result is a thick type of racism papered over by what some describe as self-satisfied liberalism. And just how does it affect daily life? Well, Judge Alexander expressed that it's hard to escape it. It's the daily busyness and business of life, going to work, interacting with colleagues and more. But white friends, neighbors and colleagues ignore it. And oftentimes they're part of the problem. Judge Alexander and T. Michael Rambo told me about racism in the most mundane encounters at the local grocery stores and even just buying clothes. And as a matter of fact, I, I had gotten uh, so frustrated with some of it, especially in, a, in a, one of our larger department stores here, that I just got a personal shopper and quit going in because mm -hmm. it was just I just got tired of it. Mm -hmm. So you just really, um, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, and it still happens even, and as a matter of fact, when I was at the council on crime and justice, we did, we did a full study on rent discrimination here. And so we sent in testers. Um, one of them was my former law clerk and he just, you know, went and tried to rent an apartment and got turned down. Then we would send in, you know, scruffy little white guy with, you know, you know, little loafers on and he would get the apartment. And that has happened. Actually, that actually happened to my husband as well. So it is just one of those things where you don't get spared because you, you know, you have an income that is you know, <laughs> higher than a few other people. One could think that one of the most recognized faces in the Twin Cities could escape Twin Cities racism. T. Michael Rambo is not only a professor at the University of Minnesota, he's also one of the most widely known persons in Minnesota theater. He's been in numerous August Wilson productions, performed with the Minnesota Opera, and at all of the major theaters in the Twin Cities. He's also been at the heart of conversations about social justice and race in the Twin Cities. But in many ways, it's also as if he's been caught in a loop, living out the experiences he's fighting hard against. So racism percolates in a very covert and very, um, um, it's, it's, it's a very covert sort of uh, 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 presence in our community here where you know you go in with the understanding that you are it's perceived that you are accepted and well received only to find that the the microaggressions and the and the presumptions that you are a certain way or or that all of a sudden they code shift on you thinking they need to talk a certain way to help you feel comfortable when they're really allowing themselves to feel comfortable because of their disease about the disease of racism and their dis-ease is, 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 doesn't have to be um, add more complexity to my own experience, you know, but that's what happens. And those organizational structures, whether it be the state capital, whether it be the bureaucracies of education, all of them are uh, drenched with those sorts of challenges. Part two, white allies. In his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. King wrote, more and more I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. This brings our conversation to Minnesota nice. Racism or xenophobia that's covert, lurking beneath the surface. Yeah, you know, in fact, uh, you know this, that there was a whole phrase for it. It was called Minnesota nice. You know, before I even thought about moving <laughs> to Minnesota, I remember meeting this Black woman at a conference in Atlanta who was from Minnesota. I was still in graduate school at San Diego. This was a national Black, lesbian, and gay no, National Black Leadership Forum, which was, you know, 
the Black LGBT organization. And I remember meeting her. She lived in Minnesota, but she was moving. And she was the one who said to me, and I said, well, how is it? You know, I've never been to the Midwest even. You know, um, I was living in California, going to grad school from Georgia, went to school in Washington, DC for undergraduate. And she said, well, you know, the thing about Minnesota is you have to understand there's this thing called Minnesota nice, where it is a disavowal of just the everydayness of racism that is obscured by just the sort of politeness, you know, that characterizes at least uh, the surface of interactions. And so I, you know, that was very much what I experienced. Um, and I think a lot of people experience in Minnesota is the kind of Minnesota nice that uh, we're not racist, you know, we're good neighbors and we love everyone. And, you know, we're a liberal state and we support unions and, you know. The best example was when we did the race bias task force here. I was head of the criminal section of that. I said, you know, we have some real serious issues here. We're setting, we're setting bail and the bail schedule in and of itself is racist. We have, because you're using uh, indicators that have nothing to do with coming to court. We fought people on that. And I said, okay, what are the two factors that are out there that tell you people won't come to court? The, the biggest factor is because people didn't come to court before. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we know if they did, if you didn't come before, you probably may not come again. Mm -hmm. But they wanted to use factors like income, residence, um, everything that's going to be skewed against Black folk or against any, any community of color here, really. And, and I'm also going to uh, talk a little bit about Native Americans who have been treated horribly in Minnesota. Um, I said, look, if your income and your residence have nothing to do with whether or not you come to court. So we're going to take that off. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was pushed back like you wouldn't believe. We eventually did take it off. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't a factor that is used into setting bail anymore, but it was really a hard fight. And then, you're, and this is the one that you're going to really kind of raise your eyebrows about. When we did the race bias task force, everybody said, well, you don't have enough data. I said, well, because you don't collect race data. So I would like you to collect it. We fought for 10 years to collect race data because judges kept saying, we can't ask people their race. I said, why? Why? I'm asked it every time. I'm like, what are you talking about you can't ask? I said, surveys ask it constantly. Nope, nope, that's uncomfortable for me. And I said, why is it uncomfortable? When I walked in, you knew I was black, right? And they were just like, well, but I can't ask that. So mm -hmm. I said, well, you're gonna have to. So we made a script for them. We said, you're gonna have to collect this data because if you're saying that, because we're saying sentence, we're saying bail setting is, is skewed against people of color. We're saying that sentencing is skewed against people of color. We're saying, every point in time uh, in the criminal justice system is skewed against people of color. So what we wanna do is collect that data so we can back it up. That was Judge Alexander speaking about how a Minnesota race bias task force didn't wanna ask demographic questions about race. But you could hear her frustration as she spoke about some of the most frustrating encounters being with colleagues who prided themselves as being progressive or anti-racist. Speaking of a typical encounter with a colleague. You couldn't tell him that he wasn't the most liberal stand-up guy out there. And one of the hardest things to do is to try to tell people who think that, that, you know, you're what you're doing is actually racist because you're not even listening to the black people in the room. Like we're, we're like, we're not even, we're living this experience and you're not even listening to us. It's like, we don't matter.
2020, lots of buzzwords like white allies, white accomplices, and white advocates made the round. The thought behind these platforms is that if more white people are vocal, breaking the silence that Dr. King spoke and wrote about, it would be a step in the right direction. Here's T. Michael Rambo. Yes, we walk in solidarity with our allies and with our accomplices that are white, um, but the overarching reality is that they can walk away without any sense of uh, impact or um, addressing uh, complications of, of, of anything because of color, because of race. And so we just see that black and brown bodies have such disparity and such um, uh, the, the, the numbers reflect clearly the, the range of, of atrocities that are hurled at and it fall on the backs and the shoulders of people like George Floyd and others. And it sits, it sits in the marrow of how our city council in Minneapolis, our mayor in Minneapolis, and so many others have lost sight of the, of, of the real question here. How do we create safe spaces and spaces for, for black and brown bodies to exist and coexist with the dignity and the humanity that has been bestowed upon us by what we call the constitution? We need not have to seek, uh, apologize for our, our blackness or our humanness, but yet we live in a city um, that struggles with that. But according to some studies, Many white Minnesotans do not perceive the problem that black people complain of. In Minnesota, 56% of Republicans believe that white and black people are treated equally in the justice system. Overall, nearly a third of Minnesotans agree. If you sort of invest in a narrative about racism doesn't happen here, uh, it doesn't actually allow you to see and acknowledge the structural racisms that will happen in a police department and that will je jeopardize people's lives. You know, mm -hmm. um, so they actually are of a piece, um, even though not quite the same thing. Professor Ferguson. Part three, trauma and racism. According to Dr. David Williams, a professor of public health at Harvard University, over 200 black people die prematurely every single day. And this is a directly attributable to racism. Dr. Williams has spent over 25 years studying the premature deaths of black people. And he says, no matter how you look at this data, the outcomes are the same. I asked our guest about this. I think it takes a toll on us. It takes a toll on us uh, physically. I think um, our stress levels are always higher. Uh, I actually suffered from a, a stress-related illness for many years. And I think a lot of it was just really brought on by racism. And so, uh, and those are things that people really don't like to talk about. But I think when you get those kind of microaggressions on a consistent basis, it does actually um, work uh, to your detriment. And I think it's been, um, it's been hard to try to um, figure out, I mean, because even some of the some of the physical challenges that I've had, you know, I've kind of asked my doctors, okay, so like, what, what is causing this? And they go, well, you know, stress is really bad. And then people want to say it's just the stress of the job. But, you know, I, I've been able to kind of, uh, I don't think it's always been that I think it's been that coupled with all the other things that that is always a constant fight and it is is really hard i've been very disheartened uh obviously during these last four years where um being racist became almost acceptable again and i kept thinking one of the things that break my breaks my heart a lot is the fact that my my children are having to face these issues that I thought that we had actually come so far <laughs> on and have really now shown that we really haven't come far at all. 
Uh, we've come a little ways, um, but not as far as we should have. And I, and just the fact that for the next 30, 40 years, my children are gonna face these same challenges as black women um, is very disheartening to me. Mm-hmm. And even though I think it's going to be, um, they probably won't take as much as, as maybe some of us did that are, you know, now in our upper 60s, um, and they'll demand more, but they're still going to have to deal with those issues. So I, I spend a lot of time talking to my kids about self-care, about how they take care of themselves, how they um, really uh gird against getting out and having to fight those fights on a constant basis because they're going to have to they're going to have to do it as uh african-american women uh they gotta they are going to have to fight sexism as well as racism and and the stereotypes that they have about black women period um and because it's become now so okay and i was extremely disheartened i watched uh, uh, interview, I think that uh, a snippet of an interview they're getting ready to do on 60 Minutes with one of these white supremacist groups and trying to say, well, you know, our goal was to start a race war. And I'm like, what are we talking about in 2021? It wears us out. It really, uh, it creates health crises amongst members of our community. High blood pressure, diabetes, migraines, stomach and lower GI uh, behavior, um, all of those things have a direct impact or direct correlation Mm -hmm. to just what we're talking about. And um, I think that uh, it's got to stop. And according to Dr. George Woods, what did Black people and white people see differently? Or did they see the same thing with Derek Chauvin pressing his knee into George Floyd's neck until he died? Was the psychological response the same? Well, and that's the difference. I mean, I think everyone was horrified. Um, The difference is, of course, that Black people saw their brother or their uncle or their cousin, um, or they had to, no matter what their socioeconomic level may be, they may be reliving a family member. So we're talking about trauma rather than stress. Right? I think that for those, uh, those of, that are not of color, not, not black, I totally see the stress from the pain that that may have caused many people. That's different than causing you trauma. Trauma is the deregulation of emotion. Trauma is the irrational response. Trauma is the fear. Trauma is the overreaction or the underreaction. You don't know which it may be. Trauma is the personalization of the event, right? It becomes personal to you. It's not just a political event, right? It's a personal event that hurts you in your heart. And and that is really in many ways, sadly, the undermining of the American African of the African American is that we are traumatized and are and consequently we often move from a pathological place rather than a place of healing and and privilege. And it, it undermines us. It undermines our abilities. And this trauma then can take place within African-Americans regardless of their socioeconomic status. So that even if you're wealthy, even if you're Oprah, even if you're, you know, fill in the blank in terms of how many zeros in your right. bank account, trauma can happen to you after. Trauma can happen to you. I'm, I'm in... Uh... I'm in Montana and I'm walking down the street and um, I see these two white guys working on their lawnmower two blocks away and uh, I'm walking toward them. I'm just taking my, I'm traveling. I'm just taking my everyday walk. And I think to myself, should I keep walking down this street? And then I start thinking, how far am I away from my friend's house? 
from which I came. And then I start thinking, well, maybe I should turn down this street. And my heart is racing and I get close to them and I walk past them and they never look up. Mm-hmm. It's not their issue. Right. It's my issue. It's the, it's the extra weight. It's the extra weight. It's the, it's the undermining of, the, of concentration. It's the tiring of focus. It's the extra weight. It's what we always uh, were taught about having to be twice as good to do the same job. That is not just a function of racism. That is also a function of the impact of trauma on our ability to do that job because we're having to think about our hair. We're having to think about our clothes. We're having, to, we're having to code switch from talking to my mother in the morning to talking to my boss in the afternoon. We're having to do all of these things that undermine our consciousness. However, we do it very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, in my, in my opinion, it is the same thing that women have to do on a daily basis, right? Um, And so black women have to do two or three or four things. After weeks of conversations and interviews, I ended where I began with Dr. Woods. I asked him, who killed George Floyd? That's such a hard question, Michelle, because uh, George Floyd had such a high potential of being dead so early in life. So the question of who eventually took his life is very difficult. Um, His potential for dying was early, was increased from the moment he was born. And it increased exponentially through his childhood, through his adulthood, through his contacts with uh, the criminal justice system. And so you see this increasingly steep statistical curve and emotional curve that says your chances of living are fewer and fewer. Mm-hmm. So there's no question that a person took his life, but that person is really an institutional representation Mm -hmm. rather than really an individual. We have to deal with him as an individual, but he is really an institutional representation. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Patricia Jones-Blessman, Dr. George Woods, Tasha Green-Cruzat, Professor Roderick Ferguson, and T. Michael Rambo for joining us and being part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is with special guests tackling issues related to climate change. Is it real? Now what? 
We'll be joined by Norbasi Flint and Osprey Oriel Lake. It will be an episode you will not want to miss. For more information on what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin and Apple Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcast, and Stitcher. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring the hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us to recommend a guest for our show or a topic that you want to hear about, Write to us at ontheissuesatmizmagazine.com, and we do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll and Mariah Lindsay, and we thank Oliver Hogg for research and digital assistance. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, and music by Chris J. Lee. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance.